Hi, Joe. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. How are you? Did you just wake up, Joe? Um, I'm not going <laughs> to answer that question. <laughs> That'd be incriminating. I wasn't going to say it, but he did. You know, look, it's a Friday morning. I don't have classes. What do you want me to do? This is my first thing today. <laughs> no, 6 a.m. Dude, so true story. Um, My kids got up at 6.15 and today was my day to sleep in. I set an alarm for 7.45 so that Renee and I could both like shower and have like a peaceful morning. I woke up at 8.22 to my phone like glitch snoozing my alarm on repeat. And I, and I texted my wife. I was like, you could have woke me up. She's like, oh, I just decided to let you sleep. I was like, okay, well, thanks. Thanks, Renee. That's mm. amazing. Also, I would just like you all to take in this goodness right here. Ooh. It's going on. Some um, some French pressery in the works. This is going to be my first cup of coffee today. So <laughs> where, dude, it has been a minute since I've used Zoom. I want to turn your volumes down without turning my volume down. It's 2022 and we still haven't solved talking to other people on the computer. This is why Discord Ooh. is better. Ooh. I've never I've never tried Discord in my life. I'd actually be fine if Joe if Joe adopts Discord, I would just switch the entire show to Discord. <laughs> I mean, is it hard to like learn how to use? No, it's very easy. It's optimized for gamers, but you know, it's just basic calling and basic video chatting is the thing that it does well okay it's basically slack but it's a dark form <laughs> oh like slack is slack is white discord is like black and it's the same thing like text channels voice chat channels all i mean interesting you can turn on light mode but people will make fun of you it's literally slack for or gamers basically that's kind of cool actually but you can video call in it you can voice call in it and you can right click on somebody's name in your voice call and adjust their volume <laughs> for, for you. Oh. Rather yeah. than having one person in the call be ultra right. loud and the other person ultra quiet. Yeah, because for me, both of you are ultra loud and I'm ultra quiet. Hmm. But whatever, it's fine. It's probably because I'm using my nice in-ears and I can't hear like myself talk. Okay, okay. <laughs> You're too bougie for us. That's the I thing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, hey boys i'm gonna be honest real quick um of all the days to do it the working men decided to work in my neighbor's backyard and chop down trees and such so yeah uh, <laughs> that's awesome yeah i might if i i might say that on the recording just so that the viewers know that if there's like a big <laughs> in the back, it's because of them. <laughs> that's hilarious well, yeah, I think I had a dream that I was trying to record a podcast and like there was work nearby. So maybe my dream saw the future. Well, you're like Joseph. You're more like Joseph than I'm like Joseph. That's impossible. From the Bible, that is, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, it's already starting shenanigans. Gosh, this mic is so good. Hold on. Oh, yeah. I do want to do microphone talk to start out with. And <laughs> yeah, because I've been obsessed with microphones lately for a variety of reasons. Interesting. Check, 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 check. I know you have. You've been stealing all my microphones. <laughs> well, we can talk about that, too. <laughs> i've been stealing all your microphones because i was trying to find the best one for podcasting purposes here's what everyone on youtube tells you to do they say start with the blue yeti yeah it's about right and then once you are done with the blue yeti and or feel like you need to upgrade upgrade to the sm7b now that is what like everyone does but a lot of people i think don't know the reasons for why they do it they just buy the most popular equipment right. in the hopes that it's really good and let me tell you, I actually had a legit almost yelling match with a dude in my Discord gamer chat. He's a college student. He's he's from my old church, but he, God love him. He wants to think that he's like a really good video game player and the next big streamer. 
And so he was telling us that like he he wanted to get a better microphone to have when he plays games like with his friends in Discord because he feels like his mic's crap. And so if I were in his shoes, a college student not streaming at all, <laughs> just playing video games for fun with my buds, I would go buy like like I would go get a gamer headset for like 60 bucks that is which is what I have like which is just like headphones, microphone, it sounds great. This dude went and dropped $400 on mic, audio input setup, preamps, a stream deck, the whole bit for his college dorm room setup that he doesn't even stream. (laughs) That sounds like a wise decision. I was like, dude, there were about 10 other things I could have given you to spend that money on and then only spent like 50 bucks on something that would be like totally fine for your casual video game hobby. You were just going to recommend him a basic headset mic that gets 99% of the way there. Right. I'm like, dude, I like <laughs> whatever. I I didn't even know how to handle that. I was like, I you're that's a mood. Okay. So he bought the SM7B because <laughs> everyone else buys the SM7B. Is that what's happening here? No, he didn't buy the S. No, it was, he spent like $400 on like this whole setup. But he, the mic he bought was like a $200 mic. I was like, dude, if you want a nice mic, buy like an Audio-Technica at AT2020. Like that's like 100 bucks and like is great. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, I, I saw this one online. Like I wanted to buy that. I'm like, all right, dude, just because your favorite streamer recommended it and you just had to have it, I guess. You are the you are the problem with American consumerism. Thank you. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, wow. I think the SM7B is really picky when it comes to your room. And so is the Blue Yeti. The Blue Yeti picks up everything. People can be walking and talking downstairs and the Blue Yeti will pick them up. If you're in a perfectly silent room, the Blue Yeti is great, but it's just nobody in the entire house talk or drop a pin or do anything whatsoever. Yes. After doing research and stealing all of your microphones, I decided that handheld microphones are the way to go because they don't pick up anything except for what's directly in front of them. You want not omnidirectional in, yes, cardioid or hypercardioid pickup pattern so that nobody can hear your brothers in the other room, which is pretty good. Yes. <laughs> Man, you guys think a lot about your mics. This is uh, this is enlightening <laughs> to me. <laughs> I have a lot of mic questions because do you have like a dream mic per se or you're just on your dream mic right now? Because like they're, you know, $4,000 Neumanns and so forth. Are you happy with where you're at? This right here. Listen, $400, sure SM7B. It is like industry standard, especially for like because... I do so much with like worship stuff and like recording like, dude, this is like this. Like if you watch any worship video, if you watch even like other modern, like pop rock music videos, like this is the thing that like people are using these days. And for like podcasting, it I mean, it just is so versatile and it's so warm. Like for vocals, you barely have to EQ it to get like really good warmth. Like you do more like cutting like some lows and things on that in like the final process just to get it like to cut. But it's so... Uh, it just feels like a warm blanket over your throat. <laughs> it's great. Oh, because when you were making a song, a worship song for Spotify, you said you could just record directly into it and adjust like a tiny bit of low and then be happy with the product other than that. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like we we really didn't. This is the mic we used when we recorded that. And then we didn't have to do a whole lot with it. That's really interesting. So I tried for I borrowed slash stole three of Quentin's or slash the church's microphones. Yeah. I borrowed the SM7B then the Shure Beta 58A, and then the Shure Beta 87A. The 58A and the 87A are just like the handheld. You know, you'll see them everywhere. They're kind of the industry standard. And so I recorded like me talking into all three of them and then, you know, shuffled around the audio clip so no one knew which was which and then said to my brothers and my family, which one is the best? Guess which one they all thought was the best. Which one? 
they all thought the 58A was the best, the cheapest and most basic dynamic mic. They all thought it sounded the best. And I said, well, I think I think the 87A sounds the best because it's a condenser and a lot more detailed in my opinion, but to each their own. And some of those basic ones, like you're going to get like a really raw, natural sound. But the the thing is for a final recording, a lot of times, like you don't just want a raw, natural sound like you you want to have something that's a little more like dynamic that's been picked up and processed a little bit more so that you can you know tweak it and edit it now sometimes you really do want just that natural sound really i mean like an sm58 like sm58s are really good industry standard mics for a reason (laughs) they're only 100 bucks and they're that way for a reason have you seen the videos where they get run over with a car and then still work perfectly (laughs) yes yes i have there's one of them at the cxf that's really beat up and it still is pretty great still going heck yeah industry standards are an industry standard for a reason man like you you are going to get good quality out of a cheap SM58. Now, I think you're going to get a little better quality out of this SM7B, something a little nicer. You're going to get more on the table to work with if you know what you're doing with it. But it's diminishing returns because, I mean, if you go into a Discord call and it's compressed down anyway, no one really cares what you oh, have as long as yeah, it's close no. to as long as it's something that's close to your mouth and there's not terrible amounts of like static in the background. It's fine. Here's the difference. Cheap mics. You can make cheap mics sound amazing on a final recording. You just have to work to get there. A good mic, you have to work less to get it to sound good. Yeah, you just drop in the audio file, make a tiny tweak, and then call it a day. All right, boys, the morning is about to be great, and I'm actually trying a new brew because Emily Bedwell dropped off a new batch of beans to share. Listeners, today's show is sponsored by a product you cannot see. It's pour-over coffee in his office. (laughs) In my Dunder Mifflin cup. I don't even know what the brand of the coffee is. All I know is it said caramel, apple, and chocolate or something was like the notes in the coffee bean. Wow. So here we go. I'm over here with my water. Today's episode is sponsored by a cup of water. Yeah, I got water too. Quentin, when did you start drinking coffee? I started drinking coffee probably when I came to college. Mm. That's how they get you. Yeah. Like (laughs) I didn't really, I wouldn't say I really liked coffee. I did it because everybody else liked coffee and I need felt like I needed to be cool. So I was going to, I was going to try to force myself to drink coffee and the poor house is a cool place to go hang out every now and then. So I would go to the poor house and on Sunday mornings at Sherwood, I fell, I did fall in love with Highlander Grog coffee. Like that was good. And I still to this day love good old fashioned Highlander Grog coffee. Wow. Rip the poor house, honestly. Oh, rest in peace. Do you want to start the show? uh are we are we like are we just talking or we are we is this gonna make it in the show are we no this is all this is all going in this is all pure gold and content because joe i love it tell quentin about like your new year's resolution last year that involved coffee and other things Uh oh oh yes 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 so yeah last year it we do themes i don't know if if you know what the i don't know if i don't know if you know what those are quentin but it's just a less it's like a more relaxed resolution where it just sort of yeah, it vaguely keeps you on track as you go. I was like, I know what a, I mean. I know what a theme is. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you're not an idiot. I know that. <laughs> um, no, but so yeah, I did this theme. Uh, the I did my, my yearly theme was the year of novelty. That's what I wanted okay. to do, and it was just a year where I was trying to focus on doing new things and trying new things and intentionally seeking those out. So I like that. One of those things was coffee, and. As our longtime listeners know, it didn't stick for me <laughs> uh, because I'd, I've decided that if I have to make myself like something, 
I'm just not going to do it, you know, like no matter the benefits, because to be honest with you, I would drink a cup of coffee and then the rest of the day, my insides would just be going crazy until I crashed. And then I would be like, Ugh. oh, coffee makes you have to poop in that, too. Exactly. Let everybody know. Good coffee makes you have to poop. It'll clean your pipes. Yep. And it just totally cleans me out. And like, I'm not a fan of that. You know, I just I want to keep what's there inside until I want to let it out, okay? It's a feature, not a bug. So shout out to my friend Sam in Portland who started his own coffee roasting company that's uh, kind of themed around motorcycles. Like he's got like a motorcycle lifestyle brand that he's like building um, out there and it's great. But one of their taglines for their coffee roasting business is it's sure to clean your pipes. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> wow. You just got to You just got to own it. Just go for it. I guess so. I just, I don't know. Maybe once the crushing like realities of adulthood, like fully grasp me, maybe then I'll say, you know what? Fine. I'll try it again. I will say so like, I, so like you just saw, like I just poured the coffee and like, I mean, I know listeners can't see this, but like that's a black cup of coffee, like just straight black, no cream, no sugar, nothing. And now I, I didn't get to that level of coffee drinking until well into my coffee years. Like, so everything in college for me was like very, very white, very doctored, very frou-frou coffee, like dessert. Like it, it was, I was drinking dessert in a cup was, was how this was going. But I did work at the poorhouse for a semester. Um, so my last semester of college, I worked as a barista at the poorhouse and, you know, learned lattes. And I haven't kept up with that since then. I, I could probably fake my way through making a mediocre latte now. Uh, but did work there and I did like that. I did start there on Highlander Grog Black. I would just get a cup and drink it there on my shift. Uh, but even then it was still kind of like I was forcing myself to like black coffee. Now, once I got into ministry and started working an adult full-time job and there'd be mornings where it's like, I just got to get a cup and get out the door and go like, it would just be pour the coffee, go. And I would just drink it out of necessity. Now I prefer it black. Now I love especially a good bougie pour over or French press getting all those flavors in there. Mm, Bring it on. Doesn't need anything. Does it like affect you anymore or like, does it, is it just water essentially? (laughs) See, that's the other thing is you get used to it and then doesn't even do anything. You need seven cups instead of three. Now it does. I notice if I go the whole morning without drinking a cup, I notice that I'm used to like, and maybe so maybe, maybe I'm confessing my caffeine addiction. Um, but I, I mean, I notice that like, I feel different. Like I make it grumpy. Like last Saturday I, I woke up and, or Friday, I guess it was Friday. And like, I woke up to a lot of texts and had things I had to respond to for work and dove into that before stopping to make myself a cup of coffee. And an hour into all these conversations, I realized I was getting really short and really grumpy with people. And I was like, I need to put my phone down and I need to go make a cup of coffee. And then come back to this in like 30 minutes after I've had some of it. And sure mm. enough, it was a good magic pill. The best cup of coffee is eight hours of sleep. I, you're not That's wrong. That's right. But I understand that your situation does not allow for eight hours of sleep in the same way that it does for college students. Oh, no. Two, two small children. They sleep great. Let me tell you. <laughs> Crickets. Yeah. True story. My kids do sleep really good, but they just wake up early. Like, Ugh. why Why do you feel like 6 a.m. is a good time to get up on a Saturday? No. That makes me so sad for you. It's sort of weird how our biological clock shifts over time because we start out, you know, wanting to get up at 6.30 a.m. when we're young. And then we, in college, naturally want to go to bed at midnight or a lot past midnight. Just naturally, that's what we want to do. 
that's that's still adulting. Mm. Yeah, I still I'm still a night owl. Like, but that's partially because like with having kids, like you don't get a whole lot of like downtime to yourself until your kids go to bed. And so from like eight o'clock on is like prime time for any form of adulting I want to do at my house without for Discord competitive gaming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Not for your wife. <laughs> no. Not yeah, no, not for an A at all. Not for an A at all. Uh-uh. Uh, but nope. she, I mean, she's pretty rigorous on like She's like bed by 10, 1030. Like if it's past 1030, she's looking at the clock going, all right, when am I going to bed here? Gotcha. I mean, I'm a pretty social person. And obviously, like I love my wife. So like we spend time together from like, you know, that eight to 10 o'clock. Like that's our prime time. But uh, after that, if I want anything to myself, like I just have I just have to stay up late. Like it's just reality. And sometimes I know that I'm choosing like I'm getting up with the kids in the morning. So if I'm staying up to midnight, that means I'm getting five, six hours of sleep. And I'm just resolved to that. It's fine. Yeah. That makes me so sad for you, Quentin. Hey, your turn's coming. I know, and that makes me more sad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Don't the joys of having children that grow up in our decent human beings outweigh the sad parts of having periods of time where you can't go to sleep? Like, hopefully the good balances out the bad in that case. 100% worth it. Wouldn't trade it. Would not trade it. Mm. I love my children. Hmm. That's good. (laughs) So, want to start the show? (laughs) Let's hey, let's yeah. let's start the show for real. All right, welcome Quentin. This is a new voice you're hearing on the college try here. The worship minister at our church, Sherwood Oaks Christian Church, all-around good guy, plays the guitar quite well, plays the piano, plays drums, probably plays other stuff that I don't even know about. And we, of course, he's at the intersection of college students and music, and so we wanted to have him on the show. Welcome. Hey, it's good to be here, hanging out, drinking coffee, and talking life. It's a good time. What all do you play? Like, just give us the list. Do Is there things we don't know about? I mean, play's a relative term. <laughs> <laughs> Zach's listen Zach said I played drums I can't play drums the way Zach Todd plays drums I can mm. keep a beat and I can fill in if you need somebody just to get through something which I had to do the other week at rehearsal but I wouldn't I would not be my own first choice to sit behind a kit on a Sunday morning um so like I know my way around a drum kit like any form of guitar or piano I feel like I can confidently say I can play that you know, so, I mean, if you learn one guitar, you kind of learn them all. So, you know, guitars, mandolin, electric guitar, bass, like they're all relatively in the same family. So if you really understand, like that sounds impressive, but it's it's really more or less I'm learning to play the same. I'm playing the same thing on a different sized instrument is all it is. Um, now, you know, nuance, I'm not like a rock star mandolin or banjo player, like, you know, can't throw it down like the best of them. But yeah, so guitar family is like that's home base for me. Keyboard, um, I would if I had the, the two instruments. If I could go back and like learn, or if I could, if I had time and would like discipline myself to pick them up and invest in some lessons, I would love to learn to play the cello. I always have cello. I just wanted to be able to say that <laughs> from like a wind instrument family. I would love to play a saxophone. I think like a real jazzy saxophone would be really sweet. Mm. I'm the same. I would love to learn how to play saxophone. And I guess I still could. I'm still I'm still young. <laughs> I know. I said I said that like if I could go back and do it all over again. I'm like I'm I'm 30. I'm fine. I got plenty of time. I could do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you can play Careless Whisper. <laughs> ooh. Yeah, I, ooh, you're right. 
<laughs> yeah, go into the mall and serenade people against their will. It's great. Oh. <laughs> Have you done it before? <laughs> no, I've just watched people on YouTube and had fun through and like secondhand embarrassment from watching them do it. Oh, quick note for the listener, really quick. If you hear voices slash the sound of a chainsaw, that's because the <laughs> men working decided to work outside my house today. So Joe is filming Saw 12 in his house. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> a tree just crashes through the living room halfway through the show. Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that would be funny. We'll start interviewing the the lawn care people. So how did you get your yes. start cutting down trees? <laughs> how accurate um, are you when you drop trees? <laughs> yeah, that that is a good question. I'm within 30% accuracy. And if your house is within mm. the 30% degree, you're in trouble. Yeah. So I forgot to ask our icebreaker question. The icebreaker question I was going to do was, are you as a person more like your mom or more like your dad? There's a reason I'm asking this icebreaker question, but we'll do it first. Okay. Um, uh, I would, I would say, I mean, most people like I would, my mom, I'm, I'm more like my mom. Uh, I have, I grew up like just closer to my mom, like not my dad and I had a great relationship, like nothing bad about that. Uh, and there's a lot of things I do that are my dad, but I would say just in general, like my, like my demeanor, my patience, my, I mean, my faith walk, you know, my mom was my big influencer in that. Uh, so yeah, I would say my mom. Mama's boy. Mama's boy at heart. <laughs> I love you, mom. Aww. Shout outs to my mom. I'm trying to think of what my answer would be to this question. While Joe's thinking about it, I've had time, of course, to think about what the like quick way to explain it is. So the quick way to explain it for me is I'm more like my mom with people I know and more like my dad with people I don't know well. Because if I'm going around and talking to a bunch of people that I'm, I'm either meeting them for the first time or don't know very much about them, my dad's very kind of charismatic when it comes to that. He's good at finding connections and kind of getting a conversation mm-hmm. going if it's the first time. So I've picked up a bit of that from him, and I sometimes creep myself out because I say things in a similar way that he does them because, you know, you're just obviously watching him throughout your life, and you pick you pick oh, yeah. up on stuff. But my I quote-unquote true personality with people I know quite well is quite a bit more similar to my mom. Honestly, yeah, I would say very similar because – that's weird, isn't it? We're all because because if I had to if I had to say, OK, I'm more like not necessarily that I'm not like my dad, but like I think I'm more like my mom at heart just because. Yeah, I think I share her ability to care for people and like that sort of thing. But like you said, with with, uh, with people I don't know, I kind of turn that other part on, like on of my dad, who's like super charismatic and like did you know pr for like 25 <laughs> years and like knows how to talk to people you know yeah i, I mean yeah that was my dad too but like my, the the joke in my house was my dad was always we always found him just talking to walls you know like he could just <laughs> he could strike up a conversation with anybody about anything and make it interesting or just like you know bs his way through it enough that he like <laughs> would would make it fun uh and so like i i mean i've just always been an extrovert so i i think i got that bit of it but then also like in so in stressful situations, I think I I behave like my dad in the sense that like my dad was really he was always really good in high stress situations if it was like a big deal. Like the big things, the big issues, like he was like pretty level headed and like could make rational decisions and was like the guy you wanted to like talk to about oh, what do we do here? What do we do here? Because he'd be like, OK, like let's, you know, figure this out mm. now. Low importance stress situations you know things like in the household going crazy or like something breaking like the small things in life could like send him through the roof and i'm the same i'm the same way like if something small happens or something small stressful i'm like 
You turn into the bandits from Home Alone. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trying hard to keep it PG. Yeah. If you want an insight into like my personal life, um, for everybody out there who doesn't know what the movie The Christmas Story is, uh, you need to live a little and go watch The Christmas Story. Um, it's on TBS all day, Christmas Day, every year. So just wait, you know, another what, 10 months and you can watch it or just rent it. Uh, the mom and dad in that movie those that like that that's my parents like that dude is my dad 100 <laughs> percent like to a t except instead of getting mad at a furnace in the basement he would get mad at his computer in like the front room of the house is that you'll shoot your eye out kid yes okay wait, did you just ask is that wait wait hold on boys have you two seen this movie yeah i've seen it it's just been a really long time i watched it a very long time ago and it's just not a fa- like it's not a movie we watch as a family you know okay. So it just never it's a Christmas Day tradition for our family. We watch the Christmas story at least one time. And then usually it ends up just staying on in the background because there's, you know, (laughs) that's what TBS is playing all day. Sure. Yeah. No, that's fun, man. I honestly, this is off topic, but I can't wait to like make traditions with my family. You know, I feel like that's going to be so fun. That's so sweet. We're getting sentimental Joe here. Yeah. Look at this. I like that. Do you have any ideas of what traditions you want to make in particular? Oh, man. Like, you know, going around seeing Christmas lights. Well, dragging in a maple leaf tree and breaking everything and getting stuff on the carpet. Like, what do you want to do? I guess I'm thinking Christmas. (laughs) What in general traditions do you want? Sure, sure, sure. No, I mean, well, I, I I don't know. I think there's this innate desire that we all have to, like, do things that we did as kids with our kids. Right. Mm -hmm. So, like, Quentin, I don't know if if you've experienced that at all. But, like, I think (laughs) I think back to, like, summertime when we would go to, like, Bryant Park Pool and get ices afterwards. Right. Or, like, I don't know. We we always take a or like we always watch uh, Christmas Eve. We watch It's a Wonderful Life. That's what we always watch. And, uh, you know. I don't know, like stuff like that. I guess I haven't really thought about like specifically what I would want to do, but it's really just more of like my favorite traditions from my childhood slash family. But I don't know, Quentin, did you like, do you just do things that you used to do as kid, like as a kid or do you, like, did you come up with new stuff? I mean, I think it's both. I think, you know, because I mean, in parenting, you know, the, obviously the perfect scenario is it's a parenting is a partnership, you know, between you and your spouse. So it's not, it's not just my traditions. It's also for me, it's also Renee's, you know, traditions. So it's like finding the middle ground of doing that. So like, all right. So, you know, full disclosure, one of the like early tension points in marriage, because, hey, newsflash, a healthy marriage has tension points. Um, That's part of life. Um, One of the early tension points was figuring out holidays, because now all of a sudden it's not just, you know, I wake up on Thanksgiving and we go to, you know, whatever my family's thing is on Thanksgiving and we do that. And then cool, we go home. Like now there's like two families and two traditions that you both really love. My thing on Christmas was always waking up in my own house with just my family doing Christmas together. And then, you know, maybe, you know, extended family, like grandparents or whatever would come, you know, at lunch or that afternoon and we'd have dinner and whatever. And that was like our tradition. But we just always woke up in our house. Renee grew up in a family that like their family was a little more spread out and she had a bigger family than I did. So she would travel on Christmas. Like so the norm for her was to wake up in a completely different space uh on christmas and i i didn't like that uh but she didn't like just being at home just the two of us but once we had kids like figuring out that balance of like one year like 
prioritizing like time with our kids, like our family on Christmas morning, but then like traveling to go see family or like family coming to us. Like, so it's just been like this give and take of like, what does that look like for us? Because we're, we're bringing our experiences together and creating something completely brand new out of it. That is like, I mean, it's like our kids, it's a, it's a product of both of us. So it's, it's a little bit of both. Like there are things we do that are like just straight copies of like how each of us grew up. And then there are things that are just something completely new and completely special. Some families care about the day a lot. We have to get together on December 25th. It's otherwise it doesn't count. We have to get on together on Thanksgiving day or it doesn't count. Mm -hmm. Some families are like, as long as we get together in that general time period, it's fine. What can be helpful is if one side of the family is the one that wants to meet. And then the other side is like, as long as we get in the area and then you run into trouble, both people want to do the exact day and that's not good. (laughs) Yeah. And what you described is exactly our situation. Like my family is the type that's like, we would love to get together on Christmas Day. It doesn't have to be like as long as we get together and spend time together as a family. That's what matters. And Renee's family is like they're not like hard and fast on this, but they're more of the like, hey, like we we would really like to see you on Christmas Day. Like we want to be together on Christmas Day. So we you know, it it's able to balance itself pretty well. And like we found good, like happy grounds and kind of the same with Thanksgiving. Um, we've been able to find good, like happy mediums with that to be able to experience both because we want our kids to, you know, know all of our family. Yeah. And as far as, you know, Joe, you were talking about making traditions. I mean, the fun thing about making traditions is that kids think everything is cool. When I was a kid, everything, it was just amazing. Like this one five cent, you know, what were you saying? Icy at Brian Park or whatever it is, this five cent, like terrible thing. It's like, oh, this is yep. so yummy and it's like great. And we can run around and play with both the ball and like have a great time. And so almost no matter what you do, it's going to be amazing. And then what you do is don't try to recreate it later on because it wasn't as cool as you thought it was. But for a brief period of time, like, yes, every tradition is solidified in the minds of the people in the families being great. And what then what you're not seeing like as a kid is that your parents are like working hard to make it work out well in the background. But for you, it's just kind of cool and amazing. Absolutely. And the way we've also kind of struck a balance just with our family is like at Christmas time in particular, like, well, just with Christmas and Thanksgiving, like each year we like prioritize one side of the family though we like our goal is like we're gonna we're going to see all of our family but each year we rotate who kind of gets priority for like christmas day or like thanksgiving day or like who gets first kind of like priority on like how we're organizing our plans like it's a bit of a chore but that's i mean that's having a family like that's what getting married and choosing to marry an entire family because you are marrying an entire family it's reality like I mean, that's just you, you, you need to know going in that that's what you're getting into. It's, it's a bit of a chore, but it's so worth it. And so good. I don't know. How, how does distance affect it is really my question. Oh, I mean, it definitely plays a factor. I mean, so right now where we're living right now, honestly, is probably it for me, it's probably the most ideal situation we've had because for us, we're like, if you were to like draw, like make like an X on a map and then put like a dot like right in the middle like that's where we are and then each of our family is at like one of the points so we're kind of the midpoint so here's what's really sweet about the last two years for us is it's been really easy for us to just be like hey we'll host christmas this year come to us oh sneaky dog you sly dog heck yeah because we're like right in the middle of everybody and so it's it's really nice like i mean my parents or my mom's like you know like an hour and 45 minutes one direction her parents are like three hours the other direction her sister's about two hours south. My brother's about three hours north. So it's like we're kind of just right there uh, in the middle of all of it. So it works out great for us. Uh, and I love it. But distance definitely plays a factor. I mean, and for the, you know, backstory on us, we we spent 
uh, two and a half years living in Portland, Oregon, helping plant a church there. And that was, man, holidays were hard then because you're planning not only like trying to see family, but like flying back, like taking two weeks to like be in state and visiting family and driving a lot and not at your own place. Like that was tough. So that distance definitely affects it. Are there a lot of hipsters in Portland? <laughs> Gosh. What do you, well, he lived there. So obviously there is. Uh, <laughs> That's how he became a hipster. Yeah. But are there other ones other than just Quentin? Oh my gosh. Uh, I mean, for anybody who has never lived in a place like Portland, the answer to that question is like, yes, there would but like if you live there like it becomes so normal like the like the any the culture of any city like becomes so normal where you live like i think of bloomington indiana as a as a mini portland in so many ways like the cultures between the two cities are very similar hmm, that's interesting yeah and like even just i mean down to like city layout and structure and planning and like the way like i see expansion happening in bloomington right now like especially if you look downtown like a lot of like high rises with ground level retail space like dude that is portland to a t like the apartment complex we lived in downtown my first year there we were one of two high-rise apartment complexes on like that in like that radius and by the time we had moved four more high-rises had gone up around us in the year that we had lived there so it's like a completely different block now Uh, And that's kind of what's happening in Bloomington somewhat. You know, if you go downtown and things like that, like you're getting like a lot of like taller, like cities are growing up, not out necessarily. Um, And that affects the culture and the people that you have there just living in the city, being a more walkable space. So that's a really sideways answer to say, like, I mean, I sure I guess there's more hipsters in, in Portland, but I don't know if I would describe it like that. I think it's just it's a city. It's a big city. And if you go to any big city, you're going to have more of like that urban culture that's there. So, yeah. <laughs> the reason I wanted to talk about where we came from, where we're going next, family and so forth, is because I know that, Quentin, you had a musical family. Hence, that was my icebreaker in the first place with your mom and your dad, which one are you more like? So tell us about your musical family. Yeah, it all comes full circle. The music part really came from all side, like all sides of the family for me. Like I, I grew up in you know very musical family. So my mom was the singer. Like she grew up singing her whole family, all her brothers and sisters, her mom and dad. Like they all sang. Like they were just that was their thing. Um, and so I grew up like just with that was that was a normal thing. Lots of music there. And my dad, um, he I think he actually did sing a little bit in like show choir or something in high school, but he he played guitar uh, a lot. And so I've actually got one of his guitars that he had when he's in high school. Um, if you guys have seen on Sunday, that red hollow body electric that I've played a couple times. So that was my dad's like, he bought that in 73 when he was like a junior in high school or something like that. Nice. Yeah. So he was the instrumentalist and like his parents were in band and things like that. So like kind of the instrumental side came from there. And then like the vocal side came from my mom, but my dad also like he ran sound and did sound tech for decades like that was his thing um he actually worked as like a kind of a middleman retailer like he would sell sound systems and sound equipment to schools churches uh theaters in the area and he would go and help install it um so spent a lot of times in lifts helping my dad run wires and install speakers growing up too so that was always fun (laughs) so i'd Got a well-rounded experience from both sides of my family. And then it was your mom that herself was a worship pastor? So my mom's been a little bit of everything at church. Um, She kind of is Rockville Christian Church in a way. (laughs) Uh, She started working at the church when I was two, and she got hired on as like a part-time secretary, 
which then I think it was part time or maybe it was full time. I don't know uh, if it was part time. It moved full time really quick. I actually don't remember. But anyway, she was secretary first for a few years and then she took over as children's minister. And so growing up, she was always the children's minister. And so my weekends. Uh, so the story of like my my family, uh, like both my parents were very like I would describe them as like gritty people because, you know, I. <laughs> This is the privilege that I live in because of their hard work is like I and I have a I have a job and like Renee and I have a job and income that allows us to, you know, have the pretty typical work five days a week off on the weekends for two days downtime. Growing up, my parents worked seven days a week uh, in many respects. So like my mom worked at the church Sunday through Thursday and then she would have Friday off. But Friday afternoons, we would drive down here, actually, to uh, Morgantown, Nashville area. And my parents both worked in Nashville, Indiana, at the Little Nashville Opry on the weekends for 26 years, something like that, till it burned down. Um, and so, like, they both worked their Monday through Friday, nine to five, you know, jobs. But then my mom sang in the house band and my dad ran front of house sound. Uh, for every show that weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And so on Sundays then, we so we would stay at my grandparents' house. They lived like 30 minutes from Nashville. They lived outside of Martinsville. My aunt still lives there. And so we would go as kids on the weekends. We just knew we were going to uh, their house and we'd stay and we loved it. That was like a tradition growing up. We would do that like seven months out of the year, whatever the season at the Opry was that they worked there. Um, and then on Sundays... We would either when we were really little, sometimes she would make us come. And so we would stay and come home with my dad on Sunday afternoon because he had to work the Sunday shows at the Opry or she would wake us up at 430 in the morning on Sunday. We would load up in the car and drive the almost two hours back to Rockville so she could be at church to work that Sunday morning. And then we'd and then she'd get up and do Monday through Thursday and then just rinse and repeat. And that was just and my dad worked Friday, Saturday, Sunday at the Opry. And then he worked Monday through Friday as an editor for a newspaper. So like and that was their normal up until uh, my freshman year of college, the Opry burned down. And so they lost that job on the weekends and then they just went to Monday through Friday bit. But yeah, I mean, you know, around the Opry on the weekends, like getting to experience country music and growing up like in a very country music driven family. And that was what they did on the weekends. Wow. I like how it took a literal building burning down for them to be forced to retire from that job. (laughs) (laughs) The Lord is like, no more for you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. So for anybody around the Bloomington area who might hear this, like, I mean, the Nashville Opry was like pretty much anybody who's anybody. It was kind of one of those venues that like, if you're anybody in country music at some point, like that was a venue you stopped at kind of on the way up the ladder in growing your music career. So like my mom's highlight that she has talked about before, one of her favorite moments uh, there was she got to sing a duet on stage with George Jones, who's like a really well-known older like country music singer um, because I think it, I'm pretty sure again, don't remember exactly. I'm pretty sure it was because George's backup singer got sick and it was a song that was like a very duet thing. And she was, like the house band was doing the opening for him. And then he just asked her like, Hey, would you sing this with me? And she was like, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> that's so cool. Is there a video or at least an audio recording? I'm sure there's an audio recording somewhere because my dad recorded every show at the Opry. I have no idea. I'm sure actually my mom probably does know where it is. So mom, if you're listening, send me that link. <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely not a video of it. I mean, we're talking like this was back in like the nineties or the eighties. Fair enough. You know, something like that. So mm-hmm. if there was a video of it, it's, very low quality and probably mm. destroyed 
in the fire. <laughs> okay, personal question. Country artists, have you abandoned the genre or do you have any favorites? <sighs> I, yeah, I haven't really... I haven't really like listened to country music actively in a long time. Like I, I enjoy country music. Like, and I'm a, I'm the guy that like this. This sounds really bad, but like because music's my job, sometimes I don't necessarily choose music as like my like casual pastime to go like listen to things. Like, and I, but I like I still enjoy it and listen to it. So I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Like, man, I really like this country artist. Like, I'm more into like alt rock stuff right now. Um, but I still enjoy country. I just don't like go out of my way to listen to it right now. Probably, maybe because I grew up listening to it so much. I don't know. Do you typically listen to podcasts instead? I do like podcasts. I do. I do have. I do have a lot of podcasts. Podcasts and TV shows are are typically the like if I'm unwinding and just listening to something for fun. Like it's podcasts, TV shows, video games. Like that's more the route I go. It, because like I try to do creative stuff and like make music or like with church, you know, all the music stuff I do there. Like music doesn't always feel. Sometimes it feels really relaxing. Other times it feels like a job. So I'm like, I need to like put that down so I don't hate it. <laughs> I'd like to share a, a couple of Quentin related stories. So when Quentin came back to work at Sherwood Oaks, because he used to be the intern and then he left and then came back. When he started singing, I came into the service. Basically, I came in and I thought it, that John Bemis had come back just from a distance and everything. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, John came back. That's kind of fun. Uh, no, John did not come back. Yeah, he interned here for a while, too. Yeah, and I think when that happened, I was working with him in the high school area, and he had like many of the same abilities as you do, which is like great knowledge of guitar ambient pads and things like that. <laughs> you know, making making cool pedals and making cool effects. And then also like both of you had the have a really cool ability. I feel which is that no matter what the key of the song is, you'll sing it in the in that key. <laughs> uh, there are some singers that are like oh let's adjust it here and here and you are just like you two from my experience are just like all right let's sing it in that key yeah i mean i i i tend to think that like there's a lot of philosophies if if you're around worship world there are a lot of different like approaches to like planning worship music and picking keys for like congregational singing and how important certain keys are or aren't you know for singability so my default that my first litmus test on a song is can the person that is leading it sing it and sing it comfortably. And if, if they can, here's what I've found to be the case. Like I could lower a key, a song key really low to make it to where it's just like this middle range, like super comfortable for everybody in the room. And some, and some would argue with me and say like, that's actually the more appropriate route to go. I find that like singing a song close to where it was intended to be sung or recorded. Like the artist chose a particular range and a particular key because it gives that song a certain power and a certain feel and recreating that. If you can do that well, like brings that experience to people and is familiar in its own way. And here's the thing, the people in the audience that can sing will find a way to sing along with you, no matter what key you're singing it in the people who can't sing, aren't going to sing on pitch anyway, or aren't going to sing. <laughs> that's anyway. true. That's true. Uh, and listen, there are other people a lot smarter than me in the worship world that may disagree with me on my philosophy of that. That's just been what I've seen. If the leader is comfortable and can sing it well, people will, f people will find their way to follow that leader. Now, having said that, there are a lot of songs that I'm like, that's a little ridiculously high. I don't feel like let's, let's tone that down just a little bit. I typically, I typically do bump songs down like a step or a step and a half. 
especially because like lately the trend seems to be that every worship leader in the world seems to think that writing songs in the key of D flat is the new cool thing. And Mm. I don't get it. Yeah. What's the most awkward key we can possibly do? Let me ask you a question. Run to the father. Yes. That's what I was going to ask. Okay. I didn't realize that that song legitimately spans the same amount of notes as the national anthem. If you sing it, like it is like 15 steps. It's, it's crazy. So when you do that song, have you ever led that song? Oh yeah. Okay. What, what do you sing it in? Cause it's originally in C major, right? Uh, yeah, I've sung it in C. I think I've done it in C and B flat. Okay. Got it. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. That song in that song in particular, like the chorus can get high at a couple spots. So like, and I, what I also prioritize when I pick keys is like flow of the whole set. So I try to like, if there's a moment where we're going from like a really jar, like one key to another key that's like really jarring, like going from like F major to like A major, you know, there's a, there's a lot of accidental shifts getting there. I try to plan that one a little more intentionally so that I can like have the good transition. And I try to like bunch songs together that are like, you know, these songs are in closely related keys and these songs are in the same, you know, same key. So it makes for nice flow. Um, so if it's like I end up with a song where the originals in C for one of them and, you know, B flat for the other one, I might bump that C song down to B flat. Or if it's doable, I might meet in the middle and do both in B just to make the set flow better. So, you know, there are tons of factors that I take in when like moving keys around. Mm. But <laughs> I have my limits. I yeah, I don't just always default to original recording just for the sake of being like, woohoo. Yeah, that's that's the thing. I mean. Because at least when I'm leading it encounter, like I, I, if I'm leading a song, I'm singing it in whatever key I want that is comfortable for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, that's take one. I will turn this car around. We're singing it in Joe's key. Because <laughs> I mean, and, I mean, there are specific songs, right? Like Fountain, that's in E flat. I can only sing it in E flat because it gets low and it gets high and that's like the perfect range. But like other songs, it's like, okay. I need to change the key of this so I can actually sing it well, you know? And like, I guess I've never thought about like congregational singing as a part of that. That's interesting. Oh yeah. It's definitely something you need to take into consideration. And here's the thing. Like if I have, if I have a song that like sits in a really high register, the entire song, I probably am going to bump that down because a, like my voice will get tired singing that. And if me as a person who, spent four years training very vocally intensely gets tired after singing that like other people are going to struggle to sing that so like I may bump that down a little more significantly than I would if there's a song that like maybe has a little bit more range that like has some really comfortable spots but then just has this moment that jumps up to make it really powerful like those I get less concerned about because like it's not just sitting here the whole time it'll you know it kind of ebbs and flows dynamically and honestly like the songs that are really really rangy are hard to adjust keys to because like you said, if you bump it down to adjust the high notes, now all of a sudden these basement notes down here are getting really like hard to do well. So there's so many factors that go into it. But the other thing, my mom actually was the one who mentioned this to me the first time. And I was like, that's actually really wise. Uh, When you think about like church congregation landscape, like you go back even even 20 years you go back but like further than that like you think about like our parents generation like they grew up in a generation and even i grew up in a generation where music education was more accessible and more like normal like everybody learned to sing like it's part of like your schooling like everybody learned the basics of music and even the time i got into school like curriculum like that was the thing like you started to see like arts getting cut 
in school or like you didn't have to do singing. You could just do band or you could just do this general music appreciation class and that was it. And then you could choose to do art or whatever other elective you wanted. So like the general public is less music knowledgeable than ever in history in, in some ways, in at least in like recent history. So like most people coming in on Sundays, like showing up to this big churchy event and then being asked to like basically do live karaoke. Like that's not like, that's not normal for some people. Like they don't, they don't just like, they don't know how to sing. Well, you're talking about the volunteers or the people who come to, to worship. No, like this just like the average person who shows up on a Sunday, like volunteers who are showing up to serve on team. Like they're the ones who actually like have, you know, most likely have pursued music a little bit more or at least have like on their own, grown or have some natural talent but like most people who show up on Sundays now especially like younger generations like they don't have the music at the basic music education that even like I grew up with because mm-hmm. our arts programs just aren't funded the way they used to be yeah so used to there was a reasonable expectation that if someone went through you know high school they would have a basic idea of scales and chords and basic idea of that kind of thing yeah and so they could come in and do a good job but mm-hmm. if band is the considered the optional thing and like some of the kids do it, some of the kids don't, then you'll have this big divide where a lot of people know a bunch of stuff and a lot of people know nothing. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think you see that in churches today and, you know, I think that's why a lot of, that's why a lot of churches opt for not just having a bunch of musical worship on a Sunday morning and having other expressions artistically of worship, which, you know, like I'm, I'm all for, but also why as like a church leader, like I'm very, like I guard the songs we choose, like how many new songs are doing, because I ha- like we have to make things more familiar and more attainable for people. If we if we want services to be like a participatory experience and not just a come and watch to go back to run to the father for a second at CSF last night, we decided to do it in G major instead of C major. And this might sound normally I like the original key better, but I actually liked it in G major way better. I think we did it in D. Oh, <laughs> we changed it in a way that I liked it better. <laughs> than the way it was before which is weird got it like obviously it's hard to hit the like you said those basement notes when you mm-hmm. the high notes are too high you gotta lower them you know and then the low ones are too oh yeah you know, it's hard yeah and female vocals like a lot of times like if i'm taking a song that's like a, a male-led song recorded you know you know typically most worship songs fall some for a male lead somewhere between g and c depending on what song it is like that's kind of the common male-led song range but for a female, like I may take a song that's in C, like if my wife is leading it, um, I, like I might take a song for her and bump it up from C to like D or E simply because it's getting some of those more basement notes more in her attainable low register and gets like the core of the song into like her belty range. You know, my wife's in, you know, alto, but she calls herself like a borderline tenor. Her voice has like gotten lower. Like she can, she can, she and I almost sing songs in the same range sometime. <laughs> Don't know if that makes her more manly or me more girly. I'm not sure. But um, <laughs> yeah, so a lot of times it's like I take a song that I would lead and I just shift it up a couple steps and then there that's a comfortable female key. And again, like from a congregational standpoint, that seems weird. But if the if the leader is comfortable, people will find their way around that. Yep. Run to the Father 
in the original key. Obviously, I know what it sounds like. And then when we changed it, it almost seemed like more solemn, which is very strange to say. And mm-hmm. like it shouldn't, it shouldn't seem more solemn. It's like the same exact intervals, but somehow it just seemed more like serious and buttoned down than it did before. There is, I'm telling you, there is something psychologically in the difference between flats and sharps in a song. There really, uh, there really is. Yes, that's what it is. Thank you. That's 100 percent what it is. There really is. Like if a song is in a key that uses sharps, it tends to like for whatever reason, even though it's the same intervals and you're just shifting it, I always think songs that have sharps in them feel brighter, feel like peppy. And then like a song with the like I would describe songs with like flats, they almost feel like more like I guess mellow is the right word, but more like warmer, more comfy. I don't I don't know. Like, can you like give an example of a song that sounds warm and then you're shifting it in the other direction? Okay, uh, one of the newer songs we've done on Sunday, uh, Lord Send Revival by Hillsong. Yeah. Uh, for, by Hillsong Young and Free. Um, it's I think it's a great song. So the original is in D flat. Uh, now, when I've let it, I have taken it down to C or B typically um, just to get it, you know, a little bit more in a comfy range. Um, but there's even that difference between. So a couple weeks ago, we did it. I did it in D flat because Renee got sick and I had to cover for her and she had planned to lead it in D flat and I didn't want to change the key <laughs> on the band last minute. So I was like, whatever, I'll power through it for one morning. It'll be fine. Two things happened. One, I actually found that I liked that key better because it sat a little higher in my register. It actually didn't sit the where that song in particular sat. The A lot of the melody sits on my break in my voice, like where my, what's called the passaggio in your voice, like sat right on that, which is really uncomfortable to sing on for an extended period of time. But getting it up in D flat was just enough that it didn't, it didn't annoy that break in my voice as much. Uh, but I felt like shifting it up, like I don't, it took it and C doesn't have any accidentals in it for you non-music people out there. It doesn't have any flats or sharps in a natural C major scale and a D flat has like all the flats. <laughs> yeah, that explains it. It has five of them. So on a piano, D flat uses all five black keys to play like the natural scale. Yeah, I don't know. It just it made the song feel. Yeah, warmer, I guess, is how I would describe it. Like it felt like it had a little more energy because we had taken it up and we were doing it in that original key. But it also had this like warmth to it that I feel like the song need it needed i don't know i still like it in the key of c just from like a singability and a playability standpoint because no musician likes to play in the key of d flat it's annoying <laughs> and i get that if you're a guitarist you still cape on it whatever but like pianists like i get that that's annoying um but yeah it just it had a warmth it was it was cozy to help the listeners know what's going on the original key which is d flat sounds like this And then if we're switching it down one to C, it's like, if I'm getting that right. Yeah. Yeah. Close. Like those are some of them. That's some of the main licks. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the main licks. And because you're using white notes and not adding in the sharp and flat notes, it is much preferable for me to hear the original key. Something about it just sounds way, way better. And it, it's those flats. It's Quentin's theory. I'm, I'm telling you, there's something about it. You know, I don't know about this, you guys, because honestly, <laughs> well, look, okay, I don't have perfect pitch. Neither do I. Zachary has basically really good pitch. I have relative, but yeah. Same. I, I can I can figure some things out, but it doesn't make a difference to me. Now, obviously, if you take something that's like in G and you put it in like, I don't know, E flat or something, I will notice maybe or but like for the most part and we had this conversation last week with Haley right she there's a song that we both love that's in E originally 
but you you're supposed to put the capo on too when you play it and I always just start playing it without the capo and it bothers the heck out of her because <laughs> she can tell when it's not in the right key but like for me I don't care like personally I can't hear the difference sure. unless it's drastic so like I don't know maybe there is a difference I don't really notice ever but like you good for you guys <laughs> <laughs> there's a difference maybe that's my snobby jacob school of music background coming out i don't know I, it, mm. it's i feel it, it again yeah most average people probably wouldn't be able to put a finger on that and like that's not me being pretentious like that's just it's a i don't know maybe it's because i'm so inundated in music that i notice those little things it feels like the flats really do pack more of a punch because i remember in my old days messing around with reason like eight or whatever it was in the olden days i could import a song and then i could transpose it up one which actually didn't sound usually sound yes it sounded different but it wasn't like notable it didn't change my mood Mm -hmm. then i would generally transpose it up two rather than transposing it up one like oh this is this really packs more of a punch because if it's like a major key you're moving it to where you've got more sharps and flats than you did before so i don't know it's just a theory but it's you know it's a music theory it's probably true it's just a theory a A music music theory theory. (laughs) new channel for matt Matt. you don't have to pay us for that idea that's right that's right i do want to expand on the idea of the jacob school of music though and you, just, I feel like you, I don't even know what's going on over there. People are so highly skilled. Like there was this person that was playing at church who was, you know, playing the like horn or something one of the Sundays. And he also knew how to play the piano and was playing all this stuff on there. I should definitely not go to the Jacob School of Music. I'm not that skilled, but oh, whatever. I mean, you told us a story about everyone singing like happy birthday in a slightly different key. Someone would start in C, someone would start in C sharp, so forth. Uh, I think there was something you said <laughs> about that. People just messing around. Uh, yeah, there was... Um... <laughs> I don't even know if it was, I don't know if it was happy. Maybe it was happy. I think it was happy birthday, but I also know uh, for any of you out there who've watched, uh, do you guys know what Big Bang Theory is? Have you watched Big Bang Theory? Not watched it, though I have heard of it. Yeah, I know what it is. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's a sitcom. Uh, it's, I, I say it's older now. It's not that old, but uh, it's, uh, it was a really funny sitcom and there was, <laughs> there was a song in there that one of the main characters used to sing. And I don't I think it was like his mom sang it to him. I don't know. It was really weird. It's a weird song. It's one of those like funny sitcom moments. But the song's like soft kitty, warm kitty, little ball of fur, little kitty, sleepy kitty, purr, purr, purr or something like that. Like it's just some stupid little like lullaby thing that was like this gimmick on the show. And I just remember I do remember one time standing outside of Mother Bears on Third Street with a group of friends from the music school. And we were all music ed majors, all vocal music ed majors. And for some reason, somebody was singing that. And then they started to sing it again. And one of my friends decided they were going to sing it a half step off in the, at the same time. Oh, yeah. And before I knew it, like there was like three or four of us trying to do this, like and just this really nasty, like four like cluster chords as you're moving. It was the weirdest experience trying to like trying to just listen to yourself and sing it in your key while the other person was singing it. <laughs> so stupid things like that. Yeah, you have to only listen to everyone else's rhythm and then power through it sounding yeah. just by like locking yourself so firmly in the key that you're in, which is a very yeah. fun challenge. Oh man, it was it was something. Oh, it was a it was a terrifyingly awful experience and I'm pretty sure there were people around us looking at us like what the heck is going on. <laughs> but stuff like that, yeah, that was that was a pretty daily occurrence of stupid random stuff like that. Those are the shenanigans that people get up to. Like, what is life at the Jacob School of Music? Shenanigans. Yep. Behind behind closed doors in a practice room. I'm telling you what, all the musical shenanigans. I you know, that makes me wish 
There's the guys working out there. Um, I that makes me wish I was like surrounded by people who were as musically knowledgeable. You know what I mean? Not not like in a, like you said, not in like a pretentious way, but it'd be fun to just like break out into song. You know what I mean? And just like everybody's <laughs> and everybody's competent and like they can do like good harmonies and like just playing around and hanging out. Like I feel like that'd be so fun. I will tell you, it was it was pretty fun. Like I, I obviously did not go into teaching full time. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but a lot of my like the education classes that I did, especially like the elementary stuff, it was like we would do these classes, but then we would go through some of the exercises that we would teach to it. And so it was like singing all these little like fun boppy kid songs and like going around the room doing these little clapping exercises. So we were like mimicking what we would do and then talking about each thing of like why this was important and the concepts we were trying to teach. But like singing some of those really simple like you know, uh, blah, blah, black sheep, have you any wool? But then you have a class of like music majors that all of a sudden break out into like four part harmony on that <laughs> and are just totally making it ridiculous, but still learning the, like still learning how to teach a concept, like, and your professor's just totally encouraging that. That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty fun. Yeah. Made for some fun little singable moments. Ugh. Joe, are you doing your music minor through Jacobs? I am. Yes. You need to get on, on this action. Those were mostly the education classes that that stuff happened in. I mean, really all I'm asking for is like, four or five friends who just like love music and just want to walk around with me and and just sing songs you know that's that's all i want you want to live high school musicals what you're saying exactly because yes that got it uh, see but for my minor i take classes like i don't know like music and film you know what i mean where like all of these people are and they don't really care about the class and like you know what I mean? And so I don't know. It's fun and I'll I'll have something on my degree that says Jacobs, which is cool. But like you know, uh, what are you going to do now? I will say I, this, <laughs> I'm going to, if, if any of you out there who are college student listeners and are in the Jacob school of music, you can either confirm or deny what I'm about to say. And I apologize if you feel attacked, <laughs> but there, like there are, there are two very distinct cultures I think that existed at Jacobs and it was performance majors and non-performance majors. Yeah, that's that's true. I don't even go to Jacobs and that's true. Yeah. Also within that, there are vocal majors and instrumental majors and like the top tier of pretentiousness comes from like vocal performance majors, vocal performance major friends. I love you. But like there was I don't like and maybe this was just around the time I was there, but there was just this like. And I mean, Jacobs is a really prestigious school. Like if you were like a vocal performance major, which I was not like if if you were in that program and like you were doing well, like it meant you were really good at what you were doing. So like I get it. There's a level of like snobbery that like you're entitled to with that. I totally get that. And I respect that. And I totally respect the talent and effort it took to get to that point. But there was definitely this like air of pretentiousness around like if you were a performance major versus like so like performance majors didn't necessarily at least my experience was they didn't necessarily walk around like making silly songs and doing that sort of thing like they were actually practicing their craft. <laughs> Education majors were over here being screwballs doing whatever we wanted to do. Again, maybe that was my isolated experience. Uh again, if you were in Jacob School of Music, you can confirm or deny that that is the culture. And also I will say there was a big difference between instrumentalists and vocalists and here was my experience with that actually a few months ago um so the one of the advisors at jacobs 
Uh, her name is Aaron Smith. She's on the worship team here at oh, yeah. uh, Sherwood, and she she's like one of the head advisors in the Jacob School. So she works with all the students and makes her classes or whatever. And so I went over there. I had coffee at Soma with a volunteer. And so I just decided I was going to walk over and take Aaron co- a cup of coffee. And I had not been I had actually not been in the new Jacobs building that got built several years ago because they built it after I left. So I kind of wanted to see it. And so I went in and talked to her and she ends up start showing me around the building. And she uh, is really close with one of the profs who I uh, was it a I think he was a trumpet professor. He was a he was a brass professor of some kind. I don't I think it was trumpet, but his studio was right across the hall from hers. And he was in the middle of a lesson. He just like knocks on her door, like takes me. He's like, hey, this is my friend Quentin. He's the worship pastor at the church. I just wanted to show him the room and like introduce it. And like all I had in my brain was my time as like a vocal major. If somebody would have come in and interrupted my (laughs) voice professor in the middle of a lesson, it would not have been okay. <laughs> oh, so he was teaching at the time. He was like, there was a student in there and like he, she just walked in interrupted. But this professor was like, Oh cool. Yeah. Check out this thing. Like we've got all this set. Like, and he's like, show me this stuff. Like pa- pushes pause on her lesson was so chill. So I don't, again, I don't know if that was just like my experience with who I had. And then like what I saw in this instrumental professor, but it just seemed like the instrumentalists had a way more like laxed vibe than like the vocalist did. Again, I may be making big stereotype assumptions and somebody else can write into the podcast and complain and say this guy's full of crap. I I might be. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what I've heard is like there's sort of a. Yeah, an importance placed on performance majors in general. And oh, also, there was like this unspoken rule that you dress up to go to class at Jacobs. Huh? Like that you don't you don't show up to class in sweatpants again. That may have how dressed up. I mean, like business casual, not wearing your pajamas. You don't show up in your sweatpants and like you just rolled out of bed. Like you show up in at least like jeans and like an, a nicer shirt. Like you just you show up looking a little put together. That's the opposite of Kelly. <laughs> not everybody did that, but that was like you could definitely tell like if you were the person who showed up in sweats, like you just felt weird. Yeah, I do jeans and stuff, but like hoodie, you know what I mean? Hoodie, crew neck, something like that. Yeah, again, and, I, and that may have been a difference between Ed Major and everybody else, because like we and our like especially by like fourth year it's like dude hoodie and a three-day-old pair of jeans <laughs> you know yeah like, there you go yep. that was that was the norm and i think as time went on and maybe that was more the experience of the masses when i was in like the underclassmen it was because like you felt like you had to prove yourself and you had to prove that you wanted to be there because it was such a competitive school program mm-hmm. that might have had more to do with it just the feeling of like i feel like i have to fight for the position i have in the school yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about today was how worship music has changed over time. Mm. It's gone from very simplified to more complicated. But as it becomes more complicated, people want to throw in more simplified songs to pay pay their respects to the olden days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a I mean, worship music's definitely been on a journey. And honestly, one of the coolest things I got to do at Jacobs, I hated this class. But the one redeeming factor about my music history class was that you got to choose a like your big term project for your first semester of music history was you had to write this like 20 page paper 20 page research paper on any music history topic of your choice <laughs> so it's kind of like so i ended up picking um the music of the reformation era in the church and how that changed the trajectory of church music um and so it was a really fascinating thing to study and uh read 
back even my own writing, like in my own study that I'd done once I got into worship ministry. But like that was a period that really, really flipped the trajectory on worship music that we know today. And then again, in the 70s, uh, we had kind of another uh, change in direction in worship music. So like the Reformation era, like that was really the first time even then, like in the 1400s, that was when even the Bible was starting to really be printed in common vernacular language. Like up until then, a lot of it was Latin. And if you were a priest who knew how to read it, you read it and then you shared that with the people. So most people were getting scripture orally and couldn't study on their own. And but today it's like there's a Bible in every hotel bedside drawer and you've got five Bibles in your house and you haven't picked up a single one of them in 10 years. Like that's just the like that's the norm for most people. Uh, but, you know, 500 years ago, a Bible in English was unheard of and people were literally burned at the stake for wanting to translate the Bible into English. Uh, and the same happened to like music. And so they started writing music like Martin Luther and some of his contemporaries like started writing music in the language in German, uh, in the language of the people that he was there so that they could sing songs in their language and not this archaic Latin language that nobody spoke. Uh, and it was revolutionary and that changed the trajectory for the next 400 years of church music. And like what we know as like our classic hymns today began their birthplace. there, starting to write songs in the language of the time using the style of music that was common at that time. Uh, so that really set the groundwork for that, where again, you got into like the seventies, uh, here and we have kind of what we call like, you know, that was like the hippie era and you started to get into all that stuff. But like the Jesus movement, the like starting to write mo even more modern rock, simplified, poppy choruses of that time that now has changed over the last 30, 40, 50 years. Even that's crazy. That, that was 50 years ago now. Wow. Um like in the last 50 years, you've seen this trajectory of like writing modern choruses that still kind of felt like hymns, but had some modern a little bit more modern instrumentation to writing completely brand new songs that now sound like the pop tunes of today to rock, you know, to all these now we, and now you have just as many genres of worship music as there are other stuff. It's been wild and it's been fun to watch that trajectory. I will say I really like where, how that movement has grown because like just again, personal opinion. Like if you go back to like some of the worship songs of the nineties and early two thousands, it's a little cringeworthy how like, simplified it was and like not interesting to listen to it was and out of respect for that it was completely written there was no like the worship music industry today didn't exist then so it was totally just being written for churches and maybe there's something more pure and holy about that i don't know um but like now at least like i really enjoy a lot of the stuff that comes out because it's at least more interesting to listen to and more interesting to play. And even in the last two years, some of the newer stuff that's come out, like is now starting to get a little more quarterly interesting and isn't a lot of artists are breaking the norm of not following the same four chord patterns, um, which as a musician is really fun. However, I also am a big proponent of songs that follow the same four chord patterns because that makes it really easy for volunteers to learn and play who aren't professional musicians because that's what the church is. So there's again, like going back to the key thing, there's there's a balance in all of that for sure. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a fun journey to watch kind of shift in the last several years stylistically. There's even Christian EDM. A lot of it isn't very good, to be fair. But yes, you're right. Pick a genre you oh, would yeah. like to listen to, and there will be a variable quality version that the Christians have created. Yeah. Yes. 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 Not everything that exists that has a Christian label on it should exist. 
There's my opinion. <laughs> Kanye, Jesus is king. <laughs> Chick-fil-A closed on Sunday. Yeah, that's all really like interesting. And I think for me, what I've seen in the last, because I've only been playing worship music since 2016-ish, so like six years. Um, but like we've gone essentially from like in my head, something like, oh, come to the altar, which is like five or six chords maybe, to that's the power where it's like this is like crunchy minory like descending thing in the in the start of it you know and like it sticks on the minor six a lot and like that's really interesting to me but also there's a and i think there's a place in your heart too for it quentin like hymns were designed to be easy to sing for the congregation you know what i mean and so like and i could tell the difference last night we we went from singing like um, Phil Wickham's Messiah, beautiful, whatever that song is called, to come that fount. And like the change in the audience was just immediately noticeable and everybody was singing come that fount because everybody knew it, you know? And like there's a beauty in that. And I think, like you said, it's this balance between making it easy to follow and making it musically interesting because I can't turn that part of my brain off when I'm listening to worship music. That's like, Oh, that's the minor six. There's the, there's the four, there's the one, there's the five, you know, like I can't turn that off. And so when it's interesting, that's another way for me to worship, I guess. But like, also you can't be singing, you know, like in some crazy key with crazy chords where it's hard for the audience to know what you're doing. Cause the song's in seven, eight or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You're right. I mean, there is something there's something almost timeless about the era that the hymns were written that I don't think I don't think anything written in the last 30 years specifically is ever going to recapture that. Like there are songs that do like there are moments like you think of like Chris Tomlin's How Great Is Our God, you know, some of these like Hill Songs Mighty to Save some of those like really iconic for each like generation and time period like those are going to stick. And really, that's kind of what happened with the hymns, because there are hundreds of thousands of hymns that we don't remember today that were written. But like we remember the big ones. And so I think you get the same thing. But we're just we are in that moment where those are being written. And so like now when I go back and listen to songs from my high school era, like some of the older Hillsong stuff or like old David Crowder band stuff like that tugs on a heartstring for me at times. Where I'm like, oh, man, like bring. So I'm I'm at that age now at the ripe old age of 30 <laughs> where like I'm starting to understand and appreciate the nostalgia factor a bit more in some of those hymns. Like, I don't want to just lead hymns all the time. Like, that's not really my heart and my passion. But like, I respect the place that hymns have mm -hmm. in music. And you're right. There is like something like the way they were written was so melodically proper. Like when I think to like my education, like in music theory, you know, 150 and T151, my first music theory class, like learning how to write voice leading correctly and like what structures and patterns to use when writing voice parts and harmonies like most hymns would have passed all of my t151 writing exams with flying colors because they were written in such a like proper way and there's something to be said for that but then you get to t351 uh, in music theory and they say yeah all those rules that you've been learning for four years like they're more it's parts of the caribbean they're more like guidelines like you can break them and do whatever you want to do <laughs> and i'm like Okay. Yeah. You know, and so like I think modern worship artists are doing that and are innovating in new ways that like are really interesting and I love bringing that artistry in there, but you're right, like pairing that with something that's super familiar. And like that's the importance of like not doing a thousand new songs a week or over a year, like you want your church to learn the new stuff. And so that's why like when we introduce a new song at Sherwood, like I usually do it 
three times within a four to five week period because that may be the only three times that most people hear that. So I want them to hear that and get used to singing it in the church. So I try to do it a lot up front before tapering it off or I pair it with something really familiar. Like, for example, like this week, we're doing uh, a new song called Resurrender by Hillsong. Uh, Beautiful song and beautiful words uh, all about like just chasing after like the heart of God and like reshaping our lives back to him and like this concept of resurrendering our ourself to him but it's it's brand new and i don't expect it to be a big singable moment for the church uh but we're doing two things with that that i think are really going to engage people is one we've got a we're showing a video over the song over part of the song that's going to be a highlight of like a bunch of different baptisms that have happened in the last you know six months which ties thematically in with this idea of surrendering your life to christ but then we're going to end the song with a couple choruses of the hymn i surrender all and like just hit this really traditional familiar moment to like just draw people back into that and i love those moments because it just like it a it makes that song that they just heard for the first time feel really cool because like oh now i can associate it with this like great moment that i remember but it also like just it makes it an engaging engaging thing you know the way i look at like the philosophy for me of like style and like what songs we choose and what we don't like i always say like we lean i'm gonna lean fully forward into like modern culture like what's relevant to our culture stylistically but i'm going to stand on the shoulders of like what's come before and what's been time tested that works so it's like leaning forward but standing on the shoulders of like what's come before us so like that's why we like we keep we incorporate hymns and like we use those things or we pull we pull out throwback songs from early 2000s sometimes into our services because like we want to we know that we stand on the shoulders of all that's come before us but we don't want to just like chill there like we want to lean forward into what is coming the people that are coming the new stuff that's coming the artistry the innovation all that stuff yeah i like that that's yeah it's a very very good yeah that's a good philosophy i like that i might steal that tm <laughs> used to is this philosophy of pick up the songbook and go to song 45 and maybe you're not super mm-hmm. familiar with it but we're gonna sing it now and you're gonna like it and now it's more of an attitude of we need to teach and have people learn and be comfortable with it rather than picking up the songbook and kind of sight reading or sight singing as you will. Yeah. Or making Spotify playlists and sending it to people. <laughs> yeah. That's the future. Our one last thing today, we do it with all the guests. Let's do a brief segment on Enneagram. <gasps> you know, your, your average Christian's favorite personality type. Yes. We talk for hours about it. It's always a good time. <laughs> Heck yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, tell us about that. Enneagram. Oh, I am a hundred percent Enneagram three. All the way through and through. Probably wing four as well because, you know, music. Nope. No? Wing two. Shocker. That's a plot twist. Wow. Yep. Three wing two. I am. My personality profile says I'm the charmer. If you go and read on a three wing two, they call themselves the charmer, apparently. So I'm a, I'm a wow. charming young lad. That's so flattering for you. <laughs> I know. I know. It makes me sound super pretentious and I'm sorry. That's not, again, not my intent. <laughs> uh, yeah, dude, I love, I love the Enneagram. I, I'm all about it. And I'm, I'm all about to-do lists, tasks. If you were to look at my journal, if I were to get my journal out for you, like every, I have a, I have a routine either if I, if I'm really on top of my routine, this happens on Sunday night. If I'm not, this happens Sunday morning or Monday morning when I come into the office, but usually on Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, I'll sit down for about 30 minutes. I pull out my journal and I make task list for the week. Hold on. I'm actually going to get it out. Nobody on podcast can see this, but you guys can. Um, yeah. So I, I, and I'm also, I'm, I'm a millennial. I'm all about analog, not digital. So hard copy journals, hard copy books all the way. Get those Kindles out of here. 
Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so each, so this this page right here each week, I just go through and I break down and make task lists and everything that I think can think of that needs to get done that week. And then as as I get those done at the end of every day, I'll go through and check off what I got done that day and kind of plan my next day based on what I still have left to do and then set that up so that when I come in the next day, I can get right onto it. Uh, so I'm big achiever all about getting things done. Uh, <laughs> yeah, driving value out of what I what I do, which is, you know, not super Christian of me. So I have to be careful of that. That's very interesting. Now, I think we, we've had a three on before, right? Is Jack Stanley? We have. Jack Stanley has been on before in the olden days of the college track. Ah, oh, I love that dude. Yes, yes. So wait, what, what Enneagram types are you guys? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know our Enneagram types? I swear. Come on, Quinn. Yeah, take a guess. <laughs> if I had to guess, Zach, you're probably, you're probably a five. Good guess. That's what I thought I was for a while. Okay. Are you a four? No. <laughs> oh. Uh, what are you then? I'm an Enneagram one who does his best to go to the healthy seven. Okay. All right. I can see that. Joe. All right. Well, no, I want you to guess first. Yeah. Oh yeah. We got to have, have it be a guess. <laughs> this tells a lot about how you think of me, Quentin. So you better answer, be- you better answer correctly. <laughs> better watch out. I'm going to say my first guess is a four. Nope. Okay. <laughs> That's what I used to think I was though. Second guess is a two. No. What is, come on, man. I- We've not really talked about this and my very limited. I mean, I know you, but not that well. Uh, seven. That's true. No, it's a nine. I'm a nine. Okay. Nines are hard if you're not. Here's the thing. If you're not spending a lot of time like every day around somebody, I wouldn't be able to naturally guess they're a nine because I know you as a very outgoing person. So I'd pick you as a seven over a nine. Mm, yeah, I get that. You know, his healthy three side. Exactly. And, and see, that's the other thing is that I acclimate to people that I'm around and you're very outgoing. So like I'm going to match you in, in what okay. you're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. OK. OK. Which is why, you know, I, I get I get the And I, I didn't know I was a nine until uh, about a year ago. And then somebody was like, hey, I think you might be a nine. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then I actually thought about it and I was like, oh, that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, yeah. So there you go. It's it's a fun time. Yeah. No, I mean, I can see that. That makes sense. You're also you also give very like thoughtful responses to things whenever I've asked you about things. So that's why I would have pegged you as a four, like the intuitive type. Mm, yes. Yeah. That, that was why my first guess was a four, because in our conversations that we've had, most 90% of our interactions have been around worship over coffee, talking worship or leadership. So yeah, just mm-hmm. knowing how thoughtful you've been, like, I'm like, all right, maybe he's a four. So, all right, but proven wrong. There was a meme I saw on Reddit about how the meme goes, if you read the test and think you're every type, you are a nine. And then I think there was like, if you read the test and think you're none of the types, you're four. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> I could I could see that. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. My my wife is like the highest of high twos as possible. Uh yeah, that woman thrives on wanting to be helpful and loving to people. Wing 1 or 3? 1. Yeah, wing 1. Her her mom and her sister, I would peg as very high ones. Two wing ones are pretty cool people. I think that's what my grandma is. Yep. And it's like it's interesting mm-hmm. because the two wing one wants to help people as the main thing they want to do how they carry it out is through being as perfect as possible Mm -hmm. ones want to be as perfect as possible and if they're wing to they carry that out by helping other people in order to be as perfect as possible it's a very subtle difference but once it's there you can look for it and start to try to figure out how the typing system really works under the hood and then when you think about me as a three wing two i want to get a lot of stuff done and as a wing two i'm going to get it done through loving people and investing in people kind of my job (laughs) 
Yeah. Versus a wing four might be more keeping it to themselves, keeping to themselves and getting as much as they can done in their own room, so forth. Mm. Yeah. I'm I'm always I'm always team player. I I like working in teams. I don't like doing stuff by myself for too long. I get bored and very lonely. On that note, Quentin, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show. This was a pretty amazing episode, I will say. Hey, thanks. This was fun. Yeah, I love just the uh, amount of randomness that we got to talk about, and it was fun to be on here. Looking forward to, yeah, listening to this and more of your episodes. This will be fun. Heck yeah. Tell your freaking mom to listen to this so she can give a <laughs> shout out. <laughs> she did tell me to send her a link, so there you go. As uh, as you put it, hey, Quentin's freaking mom, you're going you're gonna to listen to the go. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you've gotten to this point, you've listened to the whole thing. Good job. Uh, that's right. Yeah, guys, thanks for uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. This was fun. Thanks for being on. Collect all forty three. That's right. <laughs> Got to catch them all.